Hey folks, welcome back to the DC3 cast. I am Brian with me as always. Or is that convince? We're going to talk about the DC comics that were released on the 19th of September. I'm sorry, 26th of September. I'm a week behind. Um, so if you haven't read those yet, go back and pause the show and list- and read them before listening. And if you missed our special episode about Heroes in Crisis, we're not talking about it this week because we already talked about it. So check that out. And uh, yeah, let's dig right in. So we're going to try a slightly different format this week. And uh, we're going to start with Doomsday Clock number uh what is this, number seven already seven yeah. already yeah that was a joke the already we, we only have a year left <laughs> exactly yeah uh written of course by mr jeff johns illustrated by gary frank uh this is the issue that brings dr manhattan really into the uh the book it's also the issue that sort of explains the absence of the jsa we get another appearance of Samurai from the uh, Super Friends and Geoforce and some other stuff in here. Um, Zach, I feel like you rarely start off these conversations. So why don't, why don't you give us a, uh, a taste of what you thought about Doom Clock number seven? This book is just the per it's the perfect example for my complicated relationship with Jeff Johns these days. Um there's so much here that is just like classic Johns, like the stuff that I used to love and be super down for and kind of the reason I became such a big fan of DC Comics and then there's also like the worst excesses of some of that era. Um, Just like amped up to 11 and then like thrown into the Zack Snyder blender. And I don't, I don't know. And uh, there's so much going on here. So this is clearly supposed to mirror the, uh, you know, the famous Mars issue of Watchmen um and it doesn't do it very well <laughs> but it's also supposed to be the issue that gets um to the heart of the DCU stuff and it doesn't do that very well either <laughs> um but somehow i still didn't hate this um I'm I'm really I'm really conflicted with this issue. Vince, I, I am surprised to say that I pretty much agree with Zach on this to the to the word of what he just said. Um, for some reason, I for some reason I felt less distaste for this issue than I have for the six that came before. Um, and I think that was because it was crammed with more of the stuff that I like, um, the JSA stuff, Saturn girl, um, some of these other teams that are sprinkled throughout the world, you know, like the, the, the vets, uh, alternate outsiders team, the doomed, 
the Israeli team or whatever. I forget the name. Um, all of that stuff is stuff that I kind of wish. Again, I'm of two minds, just like Zach. Like, on the one hand, I I don't want any more Doomsday Clock. I don't want Doomsday Clock to have tie-ins and to become even more bloated and and overextended. On the other hand, I want to know more about all that stuff and less about how the Watchmen characters factor into all this. And even though Dr. Manhattan technically has his hand literally uh, in all of this stuff, like, like the JSA thing. So ostensibly Dr. Manhattan killed Alan Scott, right? Even though by, by like moving the lantern out of his reach mm-hmm. with the lantern that saved him all those years ago. So even though that like, completely interferes with the DCU in ways that I don't really like. I still want, I'm interested in the JSA as it's going to be constructed going forward. You know, I want more of that. Um, I think it's fair to say that on the other hand, that I really don't like this idea that Dr. Manhattan is out here doing that sort of thing, because I feel like it's part of the reason why he left back in Watchmen was because he wanted to separate himself from humanity, right? So I feel like it's it's kind of betraying the character to give him some motivation to come here and mess around with people here on Earth. You just nailed that, my biggest problem with the issue. Right, exactly. And I don't and I don't think that there's any explanation I can reasonably think of that's gonna make that right. You know, now, at the end of Watchmen, he says like he wants to go create something, right? And he just stirs up shit here, <laughs> right? Like, he creates drama. That's what he. That's what he wanted to create. Just you know, I just want to create drama. I just want to make everything fucked up for a bit. When they reprint Watchmen, it's gonna instead of saying that line, it's gonna say, uh, uh, "I'm I, I'm gonna go, uh, I'm gonna go back on my bullshit wherever yeah. I go." <laughs> that's, what, that's what it's gonna say. It's can I can I ask a clarification question? Sure. Yeah. So in this in this issue, I at first I was under the impression that the reason Doctor Manhattan was making these changes is because he looked into the future and saw. Superman coming at like you know enraged about to fight him and then he didn't see anything else past that he kind of mentions that but then at the end of the issue we get that he is definitely still seeing that in spite of the changes that he's made so how how did you guys read that did did you read that as I kind of initially did that he was changing things to try to prevent that but then it's still happening or I think so because because the thing about Dr. Manhattan is that he sees all of time, you know, at, mm-hmm. at any at any moment and 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 suddenly not being able to see beyond that is like you know, completely outside of what we know what we know about Manhattan, but uh uh that doesn't I don't think that changes anything about the way I feel about it. One way uh, if you're a writer, if you're if it's some other interpretation, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't think that, I don't think that affects my feelings about it. Mm. 
That, I mean, does it for you or? No, not necessarily. It just, I'm trying to track if this is like a, I was basically just trying to make sure that I read that correctly because it, it makes it seem like this confrontation's inevitable and all of the weird changes that Dr. Manhattan did were both like arbitrary and also like ineffectual. Mm-hmm. Um, I also wanted to talk about how the Alan Scott thing is basically like the premise of the nail. Um, mm. and, and it's weird how the absence of Alan Scott alone, assuming he didn't change any other things led to the JSA, like never forming. That's interesting. Huh? Um. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, certainly John's knows. I mean, we we all know John's. Like, it's it's probably a deliberate thing on his part. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So, I have a couple of thoughts about this issue that I feel like we haven't. Like I, first of all, Zach, I agree with almost everything you said. And Vince, like I said, you nailed like my biggest problem with the issue. But there's a few things I want to talk about that. I don't know if I like or dislike, and then something I know I dislike. <laughs> so, ever since this, and and Vince, I want to go back to something you texted us earlier this week also. Actually, let's start with that. So you texted us that, do you think that, do we think that the DC Universe is going to catch up with Doomsday Clock? Because that was the original plan, right? That this was going to take place over a year, at the end of that year, the DC Universe and Doomsday Clock will be aligned timeline-wise. So you asked us, do we think that's still going to happen? And I've been thinking about it since you asked it, and I honestly have no idea. I think it is equally possible that Johns has enough sway that they just pushed everything back a year. And we're going to start seeing, you know, probably in January or February, some events that will lead up to this. Uh, not like tie-in events, just like events in the comics that will lead up to it. In other books. Yeah. yeah. But I could be equally convinced that they just decided that to cut their losses. And that, and this is the part I don't like. I'm starting to think that this is going to have the Heroes in Crisis ending. Where Heroes in Crisis is going to be a simulation and it's not going to matter. And this is going to be Manhattan realizing he shouldn't have interfered and then going back and undoing his interference. Mm -hmm. And then it's all an event kind of for nothing. I, I think what's probably going to happen is that I think the DC books, the main DC universe books are just going to run and do their own thing until doomsday clock ends. And then there's going to be just this like indeterminate amount of time that essentially Doomsday Clock is still going to be this jump ahead. You know, things will have happened. I don't think we're really going to explore that that year or however much time leading up to the like Superman theory or all of that necessarily, um, unless we get like some flashback miniseries later on. Um, but I think that once Doomsday Clock is over, there's going to be a big status quo shift and all the books are going to change as a result of that. Not necessarily like change, but they'll be like post Doomsday Clock, you know? 
where like JSA characters will be showing up or assuming there is some kind of like, you know, reboot Dr. Manhattan reboot or whatever. Yeah, I'm not really yeah. sure. Um so I know what I know what I want I know how I want them to handle it, that how they never will though. How is that? I would love for the DC Universe stuff to run independently, like you were saying, Zach. Because really, Snyder says he has at least like a two-year plan on Justice League or something right, like yeah, that. Yeah. Well, I cannot see that dovetailing into Doomsday Clock. To to me, they're on completely separate trajectories. And I'd be surprised if if you know if it were the case that they end up dovetailing. So then what I what I almost wouldn't mind is kind of what Zach is saying. I mean everything that Zach just said, but then do do like even a even a six month or a one year skip beyond Doomsday Clock, beyond mm-hmm. the end of Doomsday Clock, and do almost like a it gives the, it gives DC the opportunity to relaunch everything again, and it gives them the the opportunity to do like a like a zero year or something, you know, later. Yeah. One year later. Yep. That's what I meant. Where like all of a sudden we have to figure out what's changed in, in, in the meantime. And there's, there's a JSA book and they've been operating for a little bit and, you know, maybe some of the legacy characters are advanced a little bit like a time skip. I would love, I love a time skip. Because I I'd love, love time skips. I would yep. love to do one year later too. Um, but the thing that I would think would keep them from doing that is because there are a lot of people with big ongoing storylines. Really, I think I think more than anything, I I can't see DC forcing Tom King to yep. put a one year yep. time skip in Batman. I just can't see that happening. Yep. Nope, you're right. He's the he's the straw there. Yeah. Well, even like I feel like you don't bring Bendis over and start him on Superman and then throw a big monkey wrench in the middle of Superman. Oh, but see, I feel like Bendis would and maybe this is like a bad read. Maybe maybe I'm wrong here, but I feel like Bendis would love that. I feel like he I don't, would just I don't go for it. I don't think you're wrong. I just think from like a uh, business marketing standpoint. Right. Like you just want to let him do whatever he wants to do for a year or two. Mm-hmm. Before you start doing that, yeah, I don't know. This is going to go down as one of the weirdest events of all time because of this. Yeah, I mean, it already is just just on its own. It's right. tonally all over the place. Well, that's also that's actually one of the things I want to talk about was there is almost nothing I hate more than the panel of the Joker <laughs> with the flamethrower for a dick. Oh, it's the Joker's boner. Come on, he's uh. showing you his boner. It's a classic Joker gag. Yeah. You know the meme about the Joker's boner? I do. Yeah, there it is. Uh, But I feel like this is like, that's the most, like, fanboy, uh, holy shit. Like, every fanboy in the world Mm. is going to want, like, an airbrush t-shirt with that on it. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, that's... Yeah. I... I actually kind of like that. <laughs> really? Man, that's surprising. That's what I was kind of like. That's one of the things that I feel like 
I was getting at when I was talking about just the excesses and the, yeah, I guess really like the things of, in Cape comic fandom that I just like can't stand anymore. Well, I just think like, I think the one thing that's bad about it is that like, okay, you're only doing this because it's in a mature book. Right. But, oh, yeah, but, right. Firestone dropped some F bombs in this one. Yeah. But oh no, he says shit. No, that's it. That's shit. it. Yeah. But what I was gonna say was, I think that's I like a playful Joker, and if it comes with a bit like a, a a gross sex joke or whatever, I that's fine. I don't care. Um, I think this Joker that Johns is writing is a lot more fun than than we've seen in like pretty much any other book. I don't lately. disagree with that, but to me, this is just like. It's just dumb. And not even like fun. I mean, it is, but like, I You know what this reminds me of? And it's not the same at all. This reminds (laughs) me of Kevin Spacey in Superman Returns going, Kryptonite! Like that. Just like some weird (laughs) flourish for flourish sake that is no point beyond itself. (laughs) Do you remember that? Yes. Yeah. Okay, that's fine. That's that's all right. It's a it's a relatively small moment sure, in sure. the grand scheme of things. Um. So, so here is here is sort of the big question that I had when reading this issue. When we're looking at this from like a macro sense, from zooming out and looking at this series, and sort of what the series is trying to do and what it's actually going to do, and putting it in the historical context of Watchmen and all of that. Do we think there's a single thing in this series that is going to be impactful is the wrong word, but that will have a lasting, that will make lasting change to the DC Universe? Because when this all started, I really thought that this book was going to be a catalyst for the next reboot or the next start of a season, however we're defining it. But as this goes on, I just feel like everyone involved is running out the clock and that none of this is going to be remembered at all. Well, the thing that we've said all along, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, is that we thought that this uh, Reggie was going to exist beyond this book. Yes. That if there were that if there was one thing to take from this book it was going to be that. And we had speculated that maybe he would be the next question or something, but um it, but and then I also think we've joked that Mime and Marionette would hang hang around afterwards just because they feel like John's pet characters that that are that are divorced from the original Watchmen but could be a reminder of Doomsday Clock, even if you take Manhattan and the comedian. Right, and... right. Yeah, so, I, but, I but definitely you... still think all those things are going to happen. But that doesn't you... mean that that anyone's going to care or that it's going to really change anything. Well, that's up to the that's up to the reader. Yeah, I mean, it changes things. If you're bringing these characters over from this Watchmen world, I mean, they were very much apart from the Watchmen world. They're not going to be in comics after this without a reminder that, hey, we came from a different place. Uh, I don't 
to know about that. Like, you know, there's a long history of DC bringing in characters from outside continuity and just sliding them into continuity in a way that we now don't even think about. Mm. Yeah, but we're still getting, like, Dark Knight Metal editor boxes in half the DC books now. I mean, like, for for small things, um, you know... I, I I feel like there I feel like it'll get referenced a lot, and then also just like, I mean, do we not think that there's just going to be a huge status quo change with all of these characters that are probably going to come back? I mean, like, Jay Garrick's going to like have to show up in the Flash, right? Like, once this is over. Yeah. See, that's one of those things where I don't know. It's hard to separate my fandom from what's a big deal. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like I, like for us, for for the DC three and probably most of, many of our listeners, bringing back the JSA is a huge deal. But is that really a game changer for DC right now? Yeah, I guess maybe I'm yeah. like, I don't know. I guess I may be con- unsure. Like uh, so. Uh, is the question here's what here's my big right, deal so, what do you mean by big deal i guess maybe i'm a little unclear all right i feel like there are certain dc events that you feel the repercussions from years later and and not in like a, it gets referenced every now and then like you know we've talked about zero hour a lot on this show zero hour didn't really do anything right it it was important for its time it reset things but Zero Hour gets referenced like all the time. But it doesn't. But it. But if you haven't read Zero Hour, it doesn't change your understanding of DC at all. I would I, say that about I, any event. Yeah, I kind of would too. Like Zero Hour was like referenced so much in like the Johns era. You know, I mean, like Parallax was such a huge part of that, and and I think Crisis is. I think Crisis on Infinite Earths is the only event by your standards then that. That adheres to this. Uh, I think I would maybe agree with that. You too. wouldn't, unless put, you can like name another one. That, I mean, I would say the Infinite Crisis. Did I mean it doesn't lot. really matter anymore? I don't even remember what Infinite Crisis was. I <laughs> I would say there was a time when you're definitely right, Brian, because like there was this like there was definitely this through line that you could trace from between all the events from well, like Identity to Infinite to like. All, you know, Sinestro Core War, well, all say, John stuff. Infinite like, Crisis leads directly into 52. Okay. Which, and like, you know, Infinite Crisis brings back Superboy Prime, who's in a huge part of Sinestro Core. So and, how is that not the same as, like, bringing back the JSA who haven't been around for seven years? Like, the, the, real, yeah. the real JSA. That'll probably, like, lead into other events and things. Because I don't think because it wasn't just like if if the only upshot of Infinite Crisis was bringing back Superboy Prime, then sure I'm with you. But I yeah, like, but that's not the... but that like is the big thing. Well, like, no, what was the secret of Infinite Crisis? The multiverse is back. Yes, that was the multiverse is huge. That but, but like, we're still playing with the so, multiverse but, now. But they but so also convergence they, is they more really important didn't than do this? anything with the multiverse. Oh, like from like didn't do anything with. We got like the Kingdom Come arc in JSA. We got a few like 
bits and bobs here and there in Countdown. Um, but they didn't touch the multiverse again, really, until mer- Multiversity happened. And that was post-New 52. Final when- Crisis didn't touch the multiverse, Zach? A little bit. Like, just, I mean, I throw that in with Countdown. Like, but see, I mean, just see, that I, series did. See, like, I just feel like but it didn't touch anything outside, like, the normal series, really. See, I feel like, and again, this is probably a discussion that we shouldn't be having right now because we have lots more to talk about. But I feel like Infinite Crisis reset the clock. In Infinite Crisis set the tone for everything up to Flashpoint. If you took away yeah, Infinite Crisis, I agree with that. So that's almost 10 years. The Infinite Crisis really was the like was the catalyst. It was the big bang for DC. Like, it was like five or six years. Yeah, though. sorry for for seven. What year was Infinite Crisis? Two thousand two. No, it was like two thousand five. It oh. was the twenty year anniversary of. Oh, you're right. Shit. Okay, yeah. I thought it was much earlier for some reason. Okay, well then, can I stop you right here because sure. then Doomsday Clock, which is essentially the catalyst of DC Rebirth, does the exact same thing. But it has nothing it's... to do with Rebirth, really. Yes, it, it has does. Everything to do with rebirth. Yes, it does. Oh, it's exactly does. the reason why, why apparently all of this stuff went missing and disappeared. Honestly, this is like the culmination of like seven years of stories. It's supposed this is to like be the yeah, post-facto. Of Flashpoint and everything that's happened. See, I just don't buy that yet. I guess is my point. How how do you not buy it? It's like. It, it's there like this is the this is the john's like mega arc and if and really in that case you could trace this all the way back okay to okay, okay let me even. let me rephrase this then i for i agree with you if this is the end of something well that's never the end but but you you understand what i'm saying if this is the cap if this is the end cap on the john's era not in an. I'm obviously gonna write more comics, but sort of in the like right. big picture, John's era. Then I agree with that. I don't know how much new story is gonna come out of this. I guess is my point. I feel like it will be as much as any event comic ever. Okay, I think it's gonna be less. This will be interesting to track over the years. It's really tough. I mean, like obviously, like metal has had a ton of stuff come come out of it more than I could have ever guessed. Yeah, I agree. Um, it's yeah. extremely prolific. Um. I think that I, if I'm going to, I think it's going to, if we're going to rank recent events in terms of the most things that come out of them and I guess like longest lasting reach, I think metal is going to be the most. I think Doomsday Clock is going to be second. I think Heroes in Crisis will be least. Mm-hmm. Ooh, yeah. And I, you know what? I'm going to put it down right now. I think an entire line wide relaunch of number ones happens after Doomsday Clock. I think we will have a a new age of heroes type thing if that's what you're getting at. Yeah, I well, I think I'm just. I wouldn't new, even all be new surprised. Number ones is what I'm saying. Okay. I I, so, oh, okay. So you're not even necessarily like talking about like a kind of more like a classic or more more typical um, relaunching of what we've seen after, like an another event. like another rebirth. Yeah, oh, where everything okay, gets okay. new number ones, and oh. and it can be it can be same it can be same creators like, uh, it can be same creators on some of the same books, but they're getting new number ones. Okay, I'm gonna dial it down a little bit. I think it's gonna be more like a, um, we'll get a bunch of new series. Um, so you think more like metal? I no, I think more like honestly, like I I kind of think I could see this being like the 
post infinite crisis era like that kind of feeling yeah okay. I, I don't think we're getting all new number ones because i think that that just like that fucks with tom king's 100 issues of batman i think this might take until it issue 100 of batman <laughs> that, to come out that is, i'm, I'm that not is even fair. joking that is fair that. um i just think like you know dc is is planting some seeds now that would be weird to keep going like one of the things that was so interesting about flashpoint was how with very few exceptions there was that one like batman inc issue how everything wrapped up at the same time because it was that big of a relaunch right mm-hmm. and with rebirth there were only a couple of stragglers right when rebirth started wasn't it like hitches jla and maybe dr fate yeah. There was like two or three books. So I just don't think that everything's going to line up that nicely for everything to relaunch. So I, I think you're going to see, like, I think if anything, you'll see a handful of new series and maybe a handful of creator changes, but I don't see them renumbering most stuff. Like, you're not going to get a third Superman number one in four years. Oh, I don't know. We'll see. I'm I'm just betting. That's all. Okay. See, I I really I'll feel bet you like, a dollar. Sure. A I, giant penny. <laughs> I really feel like this event. Like I said, now that now that we've talked this through, I see this as the capper of the John's era, not the start of much new. I I think it's just it's very hard because you know seven years ago we might have seen like. Flashpoint as like not necessarily the capper to the John's area era, but definitely the end of the era that began with either you could look at it either Identity Crisis or Infinite Crisis, depending on like where you want to put that initial peg. That felt like the end of that. But now, because like pre Flashpoint stuff is coming back into play and a lot of like John's had his hand in so much of that, you could almost trace everything back to then. Yeah. We'll see. Okay, so back to the actual content of this <laughs> issue, though. <laughs> um, so back to the subject of the Joker's these Watchmen. Yeah. Yep. These Watchmen characters uh, and how they're interfering in the DCU. So I already talked about how I don't buy that Manhattan would come to this earth and do this stuff, right? Right. In my mind, he left Watchmen to be on his own, to be one with the universe on a molecular level, or whatever you want to say, you know? Would you molecular, say he's the, a molecular? molecular yeah, he's molecular, <laughs> the molecular man. There we go. Yes, CC. CC. molecular. But... There's even more examples of that in this very comic that I also found lacking in credibility. Stuff like uh, Ozymandias, like by the end, he's just on his own, on his back in his bullshit, right? And he's like, I have a plan to save everybody. Like he's going to pull out another, you know. And I just, to me, why is he coming here to do that? None of it really makes any 
he he calls Batman the the cornerstone of an ever growing problem. Well, why does why does Ozymandias care about that? You know. Well, his world is like pretty much over. Well, I know, but like, okay, so, but how? First of all, how does he know this about Batman? How it's basically isn't that like that's John saying like Batman when Batman drives the DCU, it's dark and grim and. And that's an ever-growing problem because Batman becomes more and more pervasive in their publishing line, right? And well, the, I, I like that, that Superman. I like that meta take, but I don't necessarily think that's what he's referring to here. Well, I know, I I know that that's the meta take, and the text is different. But like to me, the text, I don't understand why Vite cares about that. You know what I mean? Like, why why does Vite care about Batman? <laughs> That's an excellent question. I guess because like he he's kind of I mean I I'm not like trying I don't think it's great. The way I read it and on I guess maybe I'm I'm piping up here cuz that this is like one of the areas that ne- didn't necessarily bother me. In fact, I kind of liked Vite's turn here a little bit. Um, also he like just super added himself as like a crazy cat person. So, um, I'm down with that characterization, but like he is like a crazy obsessive problem solver and like he sees, he thinks he's got it. He, he sees all this like unrest in the DCU right now going on and like, but there are people out in the streets with F Batman signs and, and Carrying so, like Batman scare, you know, scarecrows, and so you think he sees that, and he's, and he knows everything now about, you know what I mean? I think like he thinks, he, I think he thinks he does, and then yet still, why does he care? I don't. Well, that's because this is his chance to save a world again, I guess. But yeah, two but that, worlds. <laughs> well, how does he save his own? I don't know. That, doesn't he say that at the end though? But like, isn't he that does. isn't that ostensibly why he's here? To convince John to come back and save their world? Yeah. I, I just don't get why, like... To, to me, the insertion into the matters of the DCU is not... It, it is not connecting for me. It's not feeling legitimate. I understand that it needs to be... It needs to happen, and it needs to be part of the story for this to work. But I'm not buying it. I still don't have a good reason for why Vite lands in this world and goes, ah, I, yeah, I, I know, I know what to do. And I know he's like an egotist, but like, not, this all feels like just a, an asshole flying by the seat of his pants. And well, I think that's like exactly it because like, he is that didn't what it's really come to, to He didn't come to that like realization until this issue when he's like, his initial plan didn't work, got botched. Uh huh. And now he, but now he has new knowledge. See, and I and just he don't. He hatches a new plan. There the, again, that makes Gotham like the center of everything, and and there's such a bigger world out there that, like, to to me right now, he feels like an ant in the greater DCU. I I don't believe that this man is gonna is driving driving any sort of. Uh, change or anything you know what i mean like i don't i don't don't yeah right i don't understand him getting dropped into this world and like it's it feels like such a disconnect to me it feels like the watchman characters should 
not give a single shit about what's going on in the DCU. The only way... Or even know what's going on. Right. The only way I think it makes sense is if if the Watchmen world gets wiped out and Vite is like, well, this is my world now because I'm here, so Mm -hmm. I might as well solve the problems here. But that doesn't appear to be the case here, does it? Say Say that one more time. Like... I can understand Vite caring more if the hope for his world is totally gone now. If, well, if I he, see. I, if he chooses I see, I this, he, this is adopted planet now because well, just his based is on gone. like what he says here, he he says that he he thinks that he can. I I honestly think that this is just like an added bonus to him because he's he says something like I'm trying to get to it here, but the PDF is being slow to. I, he, up. he says something like, I can save everybody. Yeah, not only can I like save my world, but two, I can save more than one world. I can save everybody. Um, the, it's, it's, a, it's a characterization of Byte as like this weird messiah complex, which doesn't, which kind of tracks with the original Watchmen. Um, I, I think it I think it I think the personality aspect definitely tracks. I agree with you there. I'm just saying there's such a disconnect again from these characters landing on this other earth and just think because remember the original Watchmen was ostensibly and you can you can argue whether this is really true or not, but because it's self-contained it's kind of hard to deny that it was more or less this world of normal people uh dressing up in costumes and and doing crime fighting. And the one supernatural guy was uh, Dr. Manhattan. And, and so I don't want to say it was like a more realistic version of superhero comics, but there was a, there was a, a a veneer of realism pasted over it because these were just like strange people in costumes that had sexual hangups and things like that. And and I, when I say that there's a disconnect now, what I mean is they're dumped into the DCU and all of a sudden they're like, oh, this is an alternate alternate reality. It's an alternate Earth. I get it. it, it you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, there's all this shit that is so disconnected from what Watchmen originally was on a fundamental level, not necessarily a character level that I can't shake it when I read like. I The only one that it rings true to is Manhattan, where like. He he's he appears here and he goes, oh, Superman. Yeah, that's a thing because I'm Dr. Manhattan and I'm I'm omnipotent. You know, like I can buy that. I can't buy Adrian Veidt landing and not being like, what the fuck is this? You know, like honestly, like I feel like Veidt would just I mean, he's probably like imagined all of these things before. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, but that's again, that's like. That's stuff that exists outside the text we have to imagine that that's true but i i mean like he's the type of person who has probably spent many hours um theorizing about alternate (laughs) realities and what would happen there i'll give you that but like it's not presented that way either you know like i i i think what Uh, you're saying i think what you're saying is true but like i I guess I'm just saying I find that aspect much less problematic. Okay. All right. Well, that's that's fine. But then, like, the thing that... Then there's, like, uh, the comedian who's, like, 
you know, he wakes up in the jo- he wakes up in the Joker's funhouse, and then he's like, uh, "Yeah, uh, Vite just hired me to take, or or um, Doctor Manhattan just hired me to take out Bubastis." You know, that like, is that the is most so... problematic. That is so weird. Yes, that is so stupid. Doctor is... Manhattan hires <laughs> the comedian to put out a hit on. Yeah. And, like, you could argue, okay, well, Manhattan didn't want to reveal himself to, but, okay, to the world, but he revealed himself to the comedian to do this. Like, he's, he, when he could, like, move Alan Scott's lamp or a lantern to kill him, you know, like. I was going to say, like, you know, he could just, it's, it's, it's preposterously dumb. Yeah, exactly. And, like, it's. It is nothing more. No one can ever convince me that it's anything more than an excuse to get the comedian, a popular and quote unquote badass character from Watchmen, back in this book, right? Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. that's all it exists to do, and and that bothers me so much. This book had a lot of things going for it in this particular issue, and shit like that just bugs me on a fundamental level. So too is boobastis somehow harbors the and i get the explanation behind it having been destroyed by manhattan and cloned or whatever and contains some of manhattan's essence or whatever but then to all of a sudden have this weird power over manhattan this person who's been uh again previously established to basically have uh literal godlike powers literal godlike powers over over every you know, and no weakness. Again, that's part of Watchmen is the fact that, like, this god can just walk amongst man and do whatever he wants and disip- and then leave whenever he wants. This idea that there's some beacon that, that, be- that forces uh, Manhattan to face everybody in the end is just, <laughs> again, like, on a fundamental level of what Watchmen is supposed to stand for, that's absurd to me. On a comic book DCU level, that makes perfect sense, but that's why this whole thing is a bastardization, you know? Yeah. It's, um, it's very contrived. It is, yeah. And and I'm just saying that to get it out of the way, because again, like, there's stuff about this that I like, and we've bitched enough about pissing on Watchmen's ashes, but, like, nobody can tell me that bringing the comedian back for that reason is a good idea. You know? <laughs> is anything less than the contrivance. What I keep trying to figure out for myself is was this a situation where Johns had a story he wanted to tell and he found that the easiest way to tell it was through the Watchmen? Or did he want to write a Watchmen DC story? That that one? I think it's definitely I think that it, one. I, I initially thought that when, remember he did that video at the start of Rebirth about like legacy and hope and all of that. And when he did that, I was like, oh well, well maybe maybe Watchmen is such an easily identifiable totem of what's wrong with comics that he it's like the Occam's razor. Like, you know, how do I how do I eliminate all cynicism from comics while well, I undo Watchmen? Okay. But this seems to be like this is more he just wanted to play in the sandbox. And the story was backwards engineered for that reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it was definitely billed as the former, but it ended up being the latter. Yeah. Yep. Well said. Um. 
I think there were a couple things that tip us off that we're probably not far off when we say that some of these characters are going to exist beyond this. And I think, I think all of a sudden giving mime and marionette this additional baby, um, that apparently does something, has some great future or something that, that, that John saw is an indicator of that. Like, you don't think that like, that's not going to manifest in this book, right? Mm-hmm, that feels not. like, that feels like something that's going to come beyond. Unless it's a timey wimey reference to somebody we already know and they happen to be their parents, but I can't imagine what that would be. They are the what parents that- of the fourth Joker. <laughs> You're not wrong. I'm not You're wrong, not. So. Imagine what if Joker was a hero. That's the fourth Joker. <laughs> That's the White Knight. Um. All right. Other other stuff we want to say about this. Gar- Gary Frank continues to do nice work. Yes. I find it hilarious that this had less penis than Batman Damned. <laughs> you mean in girth or? <laughs> no, there's only one panel where uh, Adam Manhattan shows some brain. Yeah, I think there's two. Oh, okay. Trust me, Joker's I went, I went over with the microscope. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's joking. Yeah, yep. <laughs> and again, uh, Sean Murphy is just distraught because he was going to show the Joker's boner first, and John's beat him to it. Um, what else, you guys? Anything else? Okay one one thing I thought was interesting. Can I run this by you? Sure. I may be I may be completely nuts here. There's a panel towards the end where uh, Superman or Superman is flying towards uh, Dr. Manhattan, right? Mm-hmm. And I think there's like a there's like a body flying away from an explosion. And in the center of the explosion looks something that looks a lot like me to uh, looks a lot to me like Captain Adam's symbol. Is it the panel that has like yeah in it? Yeah, I'm not looking at it right now, but it's like there's an explosion and there's like an atomic looking image at the center of that explosion. I think I see the yeah. It it's not exactly Captain Adam's symbol, but it's similar. Now, you know that's just that's an atomic like I think it's just to indicate an atomic. Uh, blast and Dr. Manhattan is an atomic character, but do you think that do you think that could have anything to do with Captain Adam? I mean, I th- I kind of think that what you're what it's maybe implying, which is sup- really weird, is that maybe Superman punches him so hard that he explodes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's well, that's great. <laughs> I feel like somehow the secret ingredient is going to be love. Like, oh, there can't be... Are we really going to get, like, a Dr. Manhattan and Superman punching each other thing? Well, it wasn't... Wasn't there a joke? Didn't, like... Didn't Johns himself make a joke at the beginning of all this that, like, 
don't worry, I'm not writing a comic where Superman's literally punching Dr. Manhattan, you know? Didn't he say something like that? I think so. I think so but, it, yeah. but it's like leading directly to that now. <laughs> yeah. Unless that's a red hair. I mean, right, right. What what this could be because Manhattan is trying to prevent it or whatever. It could be like John steering into that quote and then when when the t- actual time comes, it's going to be more of a philosophical discussion. Um I mean, it'd be great if in the next issue we get to that. And then the remaining four issues are just <laughs> double wide panels of a big brawl. No, no. <laughs> like we get the the brawl in the next issue and then the next four issues are just Dr. Manhattan and, and Superman just getting really philosophical and just mm-hmm. talking, just yeah. chatting it up. And then Sup- they fix it. Superman gets naked to feel to make Manhattan feel more comfortable. We see Superman's dong. Mm-hmm. Talk about yeah. Smallville, am I right? <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> uh, it looks big in Candor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well played. Well played. All right, we is have, that it? We, we've, we've talked a while about this. Do we have anything else to say about it? Any other... What did you guys think about John's trying to do the time jumpy dialogue thing in the beginning? Oh, mm. the, how he's like, I see this, I see that. Uh huh. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, he's he's no Alan Moore. I hate to say it, but. But I also don't think I don't think it was cringy. Now again, I think it's just another example of um, this book. I think this book is at its worst when it's riffing on Watchmen. Mm-hmm. It needs it's best when it's doing its own thing, and I, I think it kind of does its own thing a lot more in this issue than it has in other issues. Like this weird subplot with the movie and the murder of that celebrity. That's interesting. Yeah. Just because it's so out there. Yeah, I was really. um, I'm really wondering about that. I don't know that I get that part. I don't know that I'm supposed to yet. Mm hmm. Do you guys have any thoughts on that part? I I really don't right now. I don't I don't really get the connection or or what we're supposed to why that's important. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I agree. To me it's important because it's this comics version of the Black Freighter. Yeah. We don't know why yet. But it, it and even more so because it seems to, it's it's a real thing. Right. Right, yeah. All right, Vince, want to introduce us to our next book? Uh, yeah, okay. Um, next is Justice League Odyssey, right? Yep. So, uh, written by Joshua Williamson, art by Stepan Sufyan Stevens. Um, Stepan uh, Sayek. Sayek, thank you. 
Um, and this one's interesting because this was the book that was delayed. Was it delayed two months or just one? Two, I believe. Yeah, because this was supposed to show up with all the with all the other Justice League stuff, and it's it's lagging behind now. Um, Brian, why don't you start? What did you What did you think of the first issue of Justice League Odyssey? Well, first of all, I uh, I think that the reveal at the end was really interesting, and not what I expected from this book of the. Uh, sort of Starfire, Cyborg, and Azrael being like these these gods worshipped on other planets. And it's a really fun take I wouldn't have seen coming. I also think it found an interesting way to bring Jessica into that. Um, I thought from a first issue standpoint, you obviously had to have read Metal or No Justice for this to make a lick of sense, right? It's, this is... More than almost any of the other books that have spun out of No Justice, this is the one that really requires you to know that book. Um, but I know that book, so this was a lot of fun for me. Uh, what'd you guys think? Um, I I think it's pretty safe to say, like of the three Justice League books right now, just just comparing first issues. To be fair, um, this is probably the one I'm the least interested in or the least intrigued by, maybe. Um, but I also kind of think that that was my that that was the the take I had when they were initially announced as well. Um, I don't know. I, I was a little trepidatious about this book when it was announced, and I, this issue like didn't necessarily um, fix that for me. Yeah, I was as I was reading this, I was feeling, I was feeling like, uh, okay, this is this is definitely enjoyable. I like this mix of characters. Um, I like this role. For Jessica Cruz, I thought the call from Simon was really sweet. Um, but more or less, I'm reading this and I'm thinking, ah, this is just this is just a pleasant comic. It looks really nice. Um, Sayek gets to do a little bit, you know, when when he was on Aquaman, his stuff looked awesome, but you know, it was very much one thing, and now he gets to do something else, and and that's exciting to see. Uh, and then I got to the end, and then that sold the whole premise of the series to me. So I don't think this—I don't think as a number one issue, it was all that exciting. Um, but I'm really intrigued as to where it goes because pr- pretty much from the moment that Dark Side was revealed, which we—I think you could pretty much guess who, what the voice was that was right, compelling, right. compelling them all together. You know, we we already know Dark Side's a part of this. Um, but just the whole thing about Starfire and Cyborg and Azrael being, being the old gods, quote unquote, to the, to these, to these, uh, different planets, uh, and that's their destiny to save them is really fascinating to me. And I, you say the words new age of the multiverse and that's, (laughs) 
that does that that stirs something in my loins, you guys. Um, anytime you're talking about some sort of new, I mean, it makes me think that it makes me think that there's something beyond this Justice League stuff that could spin again, spin out new books and things. You know, I don't know if that's actually going to happen, but the the promise of that is always exciting. Um, so the end of the book really sold the, me on the premise even if the issue itself was just pretty bog standard type stuff. Brian, what did I already, I already asked you what you thought. Any, anything more specific? Well, the, yeah. Um, so like I said, I, I love the old, old gods reveal as you did Vince. Um, I think it's cool to see Starfire and Cyborg together for the first time in a long time. I sort of didn't realize when this was announced, I forgot, not forgot, but it just didn't dawn on me that those are both new Teen Titans characters, you know, and it's man, the, you're the Teen Titans guy, too. I know, but just like it's been so long since those characters have been together. And those characters, even in the Teen Titans, weren't really they weren't complimentary characters like she, uh, you know, she Corey was always with Dick and Vic and Raven kind of were paired off, not romantically necessarily, but just like. Those characters always seem to be the outsiders together, you know. Um, and so I, I just, I, you know me in Legacy. Like, I love seeing those two having graduated up to the Justice League now. Uh, I think Azrael being on the team is such a weird and inspired choice. And I thought this issue did a really good job of setting up why Azrael's there, mm-hmm. um, which is just fun, really, really fun for me. Uh, I think Williamson did a great job of capturing Jessica Cruz's voice. And that is saying something because so few writers have captured her all that well. Uh, now, granted, this is one issue where she's not like the focal point of the whole issue. So that could go to shit eventually. But it seems like Williamson has a, has a pretty good grasp on who she is. Um, you know, Sayek's art is, of course, amazing bombastic everything i'm really mad that he's only on i believe this issue mm-hmm. uh, because of the resolicits and all of that um but yeah no i i thought this was really really fun it's funny zach that you said that this was the book you were least excited about when this when it was announced i think this is the book i was most excited about when it was announced it's just our different sensibilities yeah <laughs> yeah um I don't I still think I'm enjoying perhaps the other two books more, but it's also hard to judge, like you said, you know, there's been three issues of Justice League Dark now. Uh eight issues of Justice League, I guess. Mm-hmm. And only one of this. So it's hard to judge from that perspective. But I do think that it's it's been a while since we've had Justice League teams that felt truly different than one another like steve orlando's justice league of america while the sort of general premise was a little bit different you could see that team doing justice leaguey things whereas now the three separate teams are all really really different and i dig that a lot Mm -hmm. anything else Uh, I don't have anything. Well, then, Zach, why don't you take us to the beginning of uh, 
the Brian Bendis Walmart Batman story. Okay, yeah. So we have, uh, I guess it's in stores now, correct? Definitely. I haven't seen it. Vince, have you been to Walmart yet? I have. Mine does not have it yet. So. Okay, so it may be in the wild. Who knows? Um, but we were able to um, uh-huh. get review copies of the first chapter of the Brian Bendis, Nick Darrington, Batman, and I liked this a lot. But Vince, why don't you um, give us your thoughts first? This may have been, and I can't believe I'm saying this, about a Walmart exclusive comic book story this may have been my dc issue of the week <laughs> honestly i mean am i, I like, guys, it was, bendis I might is be good. with you bendis is really, good really guys good. Yeah. bendis in dc is the best it's um, it's real weird to say that <laughs> so, so what did you think about darrington's choice to make the first few pages first person view incredible and with the reflection like back at him in those first few panels and then ejecting himself with like the bat grappling hook, you know, mm-hmm. God, just so. I don't know if we've seen a bat first perspective, first person perspective of this in a long, long time. This felt totally fresh. It did. And you know what else felt pretty fresh? What was that? The, the Bruce. Uh, Alfred banter. Mm-hmm. Bendis has been writing Batman a little bit in Superman, and I I love his voice in that. Mm-hmm. He's like sneaky. He's like sneaky, sarcastic. There's a I, moment in the action we'll talk about later. Yeah, that is great. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I I love that shit. Like, I know Bendis gets ripped on for writing every character the same, you know, which I think, I I think at times is true. I think it's been true in the past, you know, but I don't think he, I don't think he overdoes that kind of stuff too much with Batman to the point where I don't believe it, you know, I I agree. I believe he'd have a little bit of smart ass shit to say from time to time, you know? Yeah. Um, and we we clearly see that it's not he he's not that way all the time you know but man this was fun and Darrington's art is just insane yeah mm-hmm. when they're crashing through that restaurant and the perspective is uh, like they're between that couple that's having dinner that's such a great pat with the giant crash yep. letters that's incredible <laughs> it's. Oh it, man! It is. And just his Batman in general, yep, is really good. Like I, I can't Batman. wait. I won't buy it just because those things are too expensive. But I would love to see like a Nick Darrington Batman black and white statue come out of this because I think it's good enough to deserve it. It's it's distinct enough. His his Batman his cowl and cape look like fabric for the first time in ten years. Mm-hmm. It doesn't look I mean, Kevlar. Re- really, since Quietly drew. Yes, there's so much. Quietly always does. Yeah, that. you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Honestly, I'm getting like Quietly vibes. I'm kind of getting some uh, Raphael Grandpa uh-huh. vibes from like the the. Or no, sorry, sorry. I'm thinking more um, 
Paul Pope's Batman Year One Hundred. That's what I'm thinking oh, okay. of. Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, especially like in the cowl. Um, Cameron Stewart in the movement and the yes, yeah. yeah. Yeah, the coloring is really, really good. Yeah, um, I wanted to shout out the colorist. It's um, uh, Dave Stewart. Oh, why, why did I even have to look that up? <laughs> of course, it's Dave Stewart. Yeah, this is pretty incredible. And also, can I say, like, for a twelve issue or a twelve page story, it felt substantial. Uh, yeah, it felt very substantial. Did you read the interview? It was on Polygon between Tom King and Brian Bendis. No. They did like a back and forth interview where there's it's basically just a transcription of a phone call the two of them did. And oh god, that sounds interminable. <laughs> there are parts that are. But Bendis said that when like, you know, that he was very nervous to write Batman and was very glad that King was doing Batman because he knew Because he'd write a better one. <laughs> no, because he said like he knew that he couldn't come in and demand Batman or that I think he felt DC thought he would come in and demand Batman. And he was like, oh, no, I don't want to do Batman. I want to do Superman. So he said that this opportunity came up, and he was like, okay. And then once he wrote it, he was like, 12-issue comics are the wave of the future. It was 12-page comics are the wave of the future. He said he was he felt like he was able to get so much done in the 12 pages, and it felt really kinetic and fresh to him. And I think that pops off the page as you read this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, what have I said on this very show in the past? The Packers are the best football team of all time. They're not, but they won today. Shut out the Bills. Um, that was it was fun. It was kind of a sloppy, sloppy affair, but uh, but no. Um, what I've said in the past is, and I don't mean to say that DC should make all their books this way, but and maybe this is the beginning of something, but. Look at Weekly Shonen Jump, you know, look at how that's and I know it's a different it's a different product that probably takes less time um, because it's black and white for the most part and et cetera, et cetera. But but like some some similar version of that where where top flight writers and artists only have to do 10 pages, you know, in every two weeks or something. And they put it out in like an anthology form or some sort of form that includes enough to make it worth a cover price that that would be about the same as what it is right now. But then you wouldn't have things like uh, artists that can't get work in on time or, you know, writers that struggle to fill 20 pages or, you know, you know what I mean? Like right. what ben, what Bendis is saying, I hope he's right. Because that's what I want to see. I've wanted to see a a weekly Shonen Jump style DC or Marvel book for the longest time. I also think it's impressive how much Batman lore and mythos Bendis packs into twelve pages without it sounding like it's just an info dump. Like like you said before, you get some Alfred Batman banter, which touches on Bruce being a playboy, right? You get a little bit of that. You get Bruce and Gordon, you get the Riddler, you get, I just feel like there's so much, like there's way more of, reading this issue, I got way more of a sense of Bendis' Batman than I got from the first, like, five issues of Tom King's run. This just seems like such a complete characterization, and he's doling out little things here and there 
but it, it all feels there, either on the page or slightly beyond the page. This is great. How did we get here? I, I just want more of it in my veins right now. It's going to make a really nice collection when it's all done. <sighs> yeah. You bet your ass I'm buying it too. <laughs> <laughs> now watch when he introduces Jonah Hex or whatever. By the end of this, it's it's all going to go to hell or something. That's <laughs> a really oh. interesting, though, choice of supporting character. It mm-hmm. is. It is. And I can't wait to see Darrington draw him. Yeah. I think it's going to look great. It is. Man, Darrington whips ass. Yeah, where has he been all our lives? <laughs> That's a great question. What What did he do before Doom Patrol? I don't even know. I don't think all that much of like mainstream stuff. Let's see. I'm trying to do a quick search, but... As we know, that always makes riveting yep. airtime. Yeah. Um, so anyway, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a break in a second after Zach looks this up for us. But uh, we're going to try something a little bit different in the second half of the show today. We're going to uh, we're just going to talk about some books very briefly, almost like a lightning round, but we, we're changing. I don't even know if listeners are going to know the format change or if we're just going to know the <laughs> format change. But we're trying something new. Trying to keep it fresh here. Um Anything, Zach? Um, so it looks like... So it's going to be like hard to dig in. He's credited on some... He, on Comixology, he's credited on the uh, Catwoman series that ran from 2002 to 2008. Okay. Um, so that was like the one that started off with Darwin Cook and um, I think Will Pfeiffer took over eventually. Oh, wow. Um... So I don't know if that was just like covers or if he maybe actually did some interiors. He did some um, Savage Dragon, it looks like. He oh, I didn't see that. Um he um he was credit on Teen Titans. That was probably just a cover. That was like the rebirth Teen Titans. Um yeah, he, drew, with... he drew like almost fifteen issues of Savage Dragon, apparently. I don't Is know that... if he, I think he must have done maybe... backups or something. Wow. Okay. Yeah, because that stuff's not showing up on Comicsology. At least, like, it's not linking to him. Um, yeah, he did. He did a uh, a backup in in the in fifteen issues of Savage Dragon. How about in that? like two thousand one? Maybe he did something with a an image series called Hawaiian Dick. Oh, Hawaiian Dick. Yeah. yeah okay. I'm trying to see if he that. did. Yeah. He did some Invincible stuff in one issue. He did some of the Madman Atomic stuff. Interesting. Uh, but not that much. Yeah. Two issues of the Phantom. I presume the Dynamite Phantom. Maybe the DC one. I'm not sure. X-Men Unlimited. Extreme X-Men. Just like issues here and there. Mm. That's That's amazing. Is he going to be at New York Comic Con? I believe he is. I want to buy something from him. I will gladly accept that gift from you. (laughs) (laughs) All right. 
Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. My name's Matt. And I'm Wes. And together we host That's The Issue, the comic book podcast that gets to know you through the issues that you love. Every month we take a random, tangent-filled look through comic books and pop culture. And along the way we cover everything from Doink the Clown to Mr. Blobby. Don't ask about the Mr. Blobby. We don't ask about the Mr. Blobby. (laughs) We do also talk about comic books as well. Like the weirdest comic books in your collection or your favourite comic book movies. So join us on the third Friday of every month on multiversitycomics.com or wherever podcasts are found. Blobby, blobby, blobby! (laughs) I knew you'd do that well. That's why I put it at the end. Alright, so we're back and I'm going to lead us in. Um, We're back to Alphabet order and thank god got... right vince <laughs> i have no idea what you're talking about oh we've got action comics 1003 written by bendis illustrated by yannick paquette um filling in for gleason here or i don't even know if we should say filling in but um it it looked really good the one thing that stuck out from this issue that i really wanted to mention is the use of kryptonite in this issue felt so classic. Yep. It felt like a movie scene. It did. I, I, I can't remember a time when kryptonite's been used like in in recent memory. It was so great. That scene was so great. Batman in this issue is so great. So so great. Uh, Batman, Batman stole the issue, really. <laughs> two parts of it: the way he says "world's finest" after Bruce says you're the Clark says you're the best was great, and then uh, like him mugging her for the kryptonite <laughs> yeah. and saying like "I just made your story great." <laughs> yeah, so good. It is really good. Also, uh, also Superman thick. Yes. Clark, Clark, Clark 400 pounds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh. yeah. All right. So, yeah. Uh, Paquette's art was really good in this. It was, yeah. Um, I've always thought he's like pretty Glee- Gleason adjacent. Yeah. So, yeah. They so fit together works. really oh. well. Yeah. Oh, one tiny thing I forgot to mention with Doomsday Clock, and this isn't going to matter at all. But uh, I was noticing because I was looking at Clark's desk here in the first page of Action Comics, the person that writes to Vite in the back matter, her name is Kelly Popham. That's one of DC's PR people. Oh, that's all. I just saw the, I just saw all like the letters and stuff on Clark's desk. It made me think of that. That's oh, nice. all. Nice. Um. Yeah. Good. Good stuff. Yeah, this book is still very, very good. All right. Can we move on? Yeah. Okay, Batgirl number 27, uh, written by Marguerite Scott, art by Paul Pelletier. Um, so this is kind of a continuation of the grotesque art, the villain that turns people into uh, famous works of art or whatever. Um it's also the first appearance of Babs Batgirl new old old new suit. Um the one that she's keeping. So she has to go and live with her dad again for a little while and she's got this old prototype Batgirl suit which looks really great and I think it looks great in the uh the Sean Murphy art. He kind of did the cover that everyone was talking about when they 
when they said she was switching to this suit. Uh, I think Paul Pelletier does a great job drawing it too. So I think basically Pelletier what I'm saying is 10 a, out of 10. I think Pelletier does a much better job than Murphy does. Oh, really? Yeah, I don't like Murphy's co- I don't like Murphy's cover at all. Interesting. And I, 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 thought, I don't know if okay. that's... I feel like he doesn't convey Babs' face all that well, so I can't tell uh-huh. if that's just my problem with it, but I think Pelletier does a better job with it. Okay, well, that's yeah, that's fair. I, I, I think they do both do good with it. I think it's just a good-looking costume in general. I really um, liked uh, Joshua Middleton's variant cover of it. Yes. That was really, really good. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that 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 looks very classic. Yeah. Um, so one thing about this issue that was kind of making waves online was that uh, uh, one of the characters ends up in. Well, actually, it's supposed to be. The 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 unmasked identity of grotesque himself ends up in a refrigerator, literally fridged. Right? Yeah, literally fridged. And there was a lot made of like what this means or whatever. But to me, it just was like, it was to me, it was kind of a meta. I mean, it was a comment on, on Babs and her, her spinal thing. But to me, it was also kind of a meta element where if this villain is recreating like famous works of art from the past, why would, why shouldn't that include a a comic book as well? You know, that's fun. Yeah, yeah, I thought that, I mean, <laughs> fun in, like, the grimmest sense yes, of the word, that, but yes. <laughs> conceptually, it's fun. Yeah. But I like this issue. It didn't do, you know, I still don't think that this run is quite, it's it's not as good yet as what came before um, Marguerite Scott started writing, but I, I think it's, I think it's on its way. I think it's, I think it was fun. It was a fun issue. Um, any, any other thoughts from you guys? Um, I thought Pelletier's art was really good. I, I thought the bit of Babs kind of, of trying to write everything down in shorthand before she forgot everything was a really interesting and like, plot point. Um, I liked that. Yeah, like ba- like Batman will be able to interpret this. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah that was good. Yeah, agreed. All right, well, that that brings us to Detective Comics number 989, written by James Robinson, illustrated by Steven Segovia. So in this issue, the most important thing that happens is that Jim Gordon outs himself as a Billy Joel fan. Uh, I, I I want to read this dialogue to get it exactly right, because it's this is an Italian chef kiss emoji moment here. Bottle of red, bottle of white. <laughs> what? I said bottle of red, bottle yeah, of white. Exactly. Uh, I'm not Billy Joel, but don't go changing to try and please me. <laughs> so my question for you is, obviously that means that Gordon is a Just The Way You Are fan. What are the other Bat characters' favorite Billy Joel songs? Uh... <laughs> The freaking Joker says you may be right. I may be crazy. Of course. Just maybe a lunatic you're looking for. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like because of her photographic memory, Babs shows off at karaoke bars by doing We Didn't Start the Fire. Because she knows all the words to it. So that's that's hers. Uh, well, Jason Todd's is obviously moving out. <laughs> uh, 
see. Tim Drake, Only the Good Die Young. Oh, there we go. That's... How do you guys know so many Billy Joel songs? Oh, I, oh come on. I could go all day. Um, well, well, we know why Brian does, because he basically, like... I hate Billy live... Joel. <laughs> I No, I know, I know, but, like, you live in... You live in I live in Joel country, probably, yeah. Yeah, you probably hear tons of it. I do. Um, I would say that... Um... Oh, man. Who's... who's uh... Fuck. I have the joke. I don't have the character to go with it yet. Give me a second here. Um, I mean, Two Faces. That woman's just the way you are. Well, that's Bruce's. I mean, that's Jim's favorite too. Oh, oh, yeah, well, yeah that's right. Okay, we yeah. Can. Okay, she's got away then. I was thinking that uh, that that her favorite would be Uptown Girl because it's so not her. <laughs> you know, because because she's the downtown girl. Bruce is the Uptown boy, really. You know. <laughs> All right. That, well, that, then she's the, always a woman, though. Okay, she is always a, she's always a cat woman. Yeah, got it. sometimes <laughs> she's pretty uptown. <laughs> she can be sometimes. Yeah. yeah. Um, obviously, two faces is scenes from an Italian restaurant because it's those two different songs <laughs> kind of put together. So you know, so Harvey sings half and Two Face sings half. Yeah. Oh, I can just picture it now. Can't you? I, I mean, Catwoman is. She's always a woman. She can kill with a smile. She can win with her eyes. She can ruin your faith with her casual lies. Yeah. She steals like a thief. Oh man, she's you're right. You're right. Um. Yeah. I feel like. Uh, I feel like Bane's. Bane's favorite cat, uh, Billy Joel song is probably uh, "Pressure." <laughs> okay. I can see him jamming these out. Cuts are just these cuts are too deep for me. I am like we're we're on the greatest hits stills here, Zach. We're not we're not pulling out anything. I'm telling you, here. I'm it's that's what I'm still though. I I'm surface level. Uh, the penguin is River of Dreams because he's a he's an aquatic <laughs> guy. Maybe Big Shot is Joker. You should never argue with the crazy man, 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 man. Yeah. Um. Who, who's who's tell her about it? Uh, oh, um, uh, Leslie Tompkins. <laughs> yeah, okay. And uh, Dick is uh, Dick is it's still rock and roll to me because he's because he's a classic. Yeah. Um, what's Alfred's favorite uh, Billy Joel song? Um, say goodbye to Hollywood. There we go. Because he was an actor. Oh, or or is it Goodnight Saigon because he was in the military? Oh, okay. Yep. 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 We could really be on our bullshit and talk about the time Will Ferrell sang that in SNL. <laughs> that totally <laughs> unfunny, on purpose sketch of them just singing that song. Uh-huh. Um, I, see, I, I, guess, I, was gonna say, I guess Damien is angry. I was just going to say that. Fuck, you beat me to it. Ah, yes. <laughs> Kiss my ass, Brian. Uh, I think the I think the Billy Joel bad verse is a real thing. I think we, <laughs> we really made some connections here. We did. That's all oh, I want to talk about with this issue, this issue of Detective Comics. Because yeah, uh, the only the only song I can't figure out is Captain Jack. Who's gonna? Uh, a scarecrow. His his toxin will let you high tonight. Okay. Yeah. 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 Or Bane. The, we uh, already had Bane, I didn't did, you? But, but it was pressure. It wasn't a great one. Piano? Did we say Piano Man? Piano Man's uh, Clayface. Well, Clayface is of... the actor. That should be taken by Hollywood. Mm, that's true. I was thinking more like Clayface is kind of like the, uh, you know, when I think of the Piano Man as a, as a melancholy figure. And... Okay. 
Okay. Um. Anyway. Yeah. That's enough of that. <laughs> I think we exhausted our. Our Billy. We don't even like. We don't even like Billy. <laughs> exactly. Joe. What are we doing? <laughs> Uh, the nylon curtain is the cowl. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm done with detective. That's that's it. Okay. Well, I think you've got the flash next. I, I do have the flash next. Yes, the flash number fifty-five. Uh, this is the you know, last arc was sort of the um, the trickster arc. This is sort of the heat wave arc. Uh, this is written by Joshua Williamson, of course, illustrated by Scott Collins. And uh, the only reason, you know, th- this is a, a fine start to the arc. I-, I think Scott Collins is just, you know, is the is one of the Flash artists of the last 25 years. I love what Scott Collins does here. I also think that his Solomon Grundy was fun. Uh, I always like seeing Solomon Grundy show up. But the reason I wanted to talk about this was, this is the first issue after Heroes in Crisis number one to reference Sanctuary. And it references it without any real thought about Wally's death. So I, I, I think that our, uh, our simulation theory might be correct. Well, and the way that it references it, it almost is like we still don't even know if it's pre or post death, I feel like. Yeah, we don't know that this is necessarily well. That uh, that's my chronological. Point. That's my point, though. I, I feel like this is the way that all these characters are going to be alluded to. Uh, yeah, okay. Until yeah. that ties up, you know what I mean? Just like I see. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I. I, uh, I feel like Scott Collins always does pretty good work on the Flash, but I feel like lately. His Flash stuff has been really, really good. I don't know if you guys agree with, with that or not. I I think it's as good as it's ever been, which is saying something. Um, I really, really like uh, Scott Collins's Flash stuff. I think um, I remember one of the earliest things that I read because you know I kind of like came in after the Johns run was over, but I remember reading. Uh, what was it rogues revenge is that the final crisis spinoff or mini is that the one where uh, which rogue is dead and they're like dragging him around um well they like they get in not impulse um what the evil impulse what's his name inertia Uh because like inertia killed bart and they're like out to get him now because that was like the number one rule you know you don't kill a Rogues don't kill a flash. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Zach, you up next? Yeah. So I have got, well, no, Vince is up next. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Vince. Yeah. So um, Justice League Dark, number three, written by James Tiny in the fourth, uh, art from Alvaro Martinez Bueno. Very, very bueno is this art. Um, I love what Martinez is doing here still. Um, uh, in this issue, we got more of that upside, that creepy upside down man. Um, and uh, Wonder Woman goes Super Saiyan 
at the end, <laughs> which was she, funny. Uh, she gets it's, her shonen power up. That's for sure. It is. Yeah, that's what that's what the witching hour is basically. It's it's this is this is becoming a shonen book. Um, <laughs> top ten anime betrayals. <laughs> um but just like the the major thing i want to highlight with this book is alvaro martinez bueno's uh art and how creepy it can be because that's that's one skill that he didn't flex a whole lot on you know detective prior to this run and you know it's not that you can't imagine that he'd be good at it but just how good art is the design of the upside down man or like the giant swamp thing that's bigger than the tower of fate or uh or or creepy as hell constantine getting all the blood ripped out of him all the demon's blood that was like the wolverine getting the adamantium ripped out of him (laughs) yeah 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 it was um so and you know the 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 plot of the book is fine. I, I guess like the, so the upside down man and the, these people from the other place are wanting, wanting to pay back humanity for essentially stealing the magic from their world. Um, it's pretty, I don't know. That's, that's pretty standard stuff, I think, but, but man, does this book look, book look good and it, it's it's doing the Justice League dark title the way it should be done, I think. Very creepy. All of our favorite magic characters. Good, good shit. I have I have some hope for the Khalid Doctor Fate to survive this also. Mm-hmm. It's nice to see mm-hmm. the character I know he's in the jar right now, but it seems like they wanna keep him around or else why would they even have brought him in there? You know, so I'm excited to see that character show up again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I thought the world building and explanation of like why, you know, the backwards word thing, kind of how Zatanna was trained was really nice. Yeah. That like, that creepy melting character that shows up is so well drawn by Martinez Bueno. Everything about this issue was beautiful. Like I was saying with Justice League Odyssey before, I just love how different all three of these books are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's good. I like it a lot. Yeah. All right, bud. You're up next. All right. So I've got Scarlet, number two, uh, written by Bendis, illustrated by Alex Maleev. Um, I can't remember if we, I actually maybe missed the episode where we had the first issue of this. I can't remember. Did either of you read the original series? Yes, I did. did. Yeah. Uh, Much to Walter Richardson's chagrin. I did not. I know. Walt's like the Scarlet go-to guy. Um, I only read the first issue, so I had some context for some of the things discussed in this issue, like her boyfriend and and things like that. But um, I'm really liking this series a lot. Um, I like the tone it strikes. I love Malib's art. Um, I feel like it's one of the talkier Bendis books that we've got at DC right now, but it's not too bad. 
Um, and this issue actually has like a lot of pages where the the art gets to breathe a little bit. So I, I like this issue a lot. Yeah, this is definitely the most Bendisy of the Jinx World books so far. But I'm it, I think it's working still. Mm-hmm. When did we become Bendis fans? <laughs> Don't worry, it'll subside. I'm sure. This too shall pass. <laughs> I was talking about the Terrifics number eight, written by Jeff Lemire, illustrated by Dale Eaglesham. Uh, you know, getting out a nice warm up here before his uh, Shazam starts in a few weeks, which is exciting. Yeah. Uh, I think this is one of the best issues of the Terrifics thus far. I thought it was really, first of all, Eagle Sham does some amazing Plastic Man stuff. Continuing this book's highlights being, uh, visually being Plastic Man things. He, he does a couple of Plastic Man pa- panels that are just incredible. And what I love is that there's a bunch of stuff happening in the background to a Plastic Man, like, uh, when, uh, Whereas like, when they decide to go off into different like trees to find cover to cover different ground, he's all of a sudden wearing like a cowboy hat and he has a badge, and just <laughs> stuff like that in the background is just so great. But I thought this issue balanced all the the four terrific characters pretty well. It gave each of them a little bit of moment to shine. I think you know the Rex not being metamorpho thing is not my favorite just because. I don't really know why you'd want to have Rex without Metamorpho, really, but, you know, it's fine. Um, But what I really liked about this issue was I really liked the, um, what's it called, Funny Land, where Plaz (laughs) and the robot go to, where you get Dr. Dread, and uh, (laughs) what was the name of the the Tom Strong rabbit? uh, Oh, I think it was Warren Strong. Warren Strong, yeah. So much fun. What'd you guys think of this? Yeah, it's still a lot of fun. Um, Vince, you had some like comments about the art that we were talking about before we started. Yeah, I just I <laughs> I was telling Zach I was reading this book and when I read it, I think, oh, this is the and we've said this before, but like I feel like I'm reading Hickman's Fantastic Four. Yeah. And and while I'm reading it, I think this isn't a DC book. Like this is a Marvel book. <laughs> and I'm reading like, and I, and I know I'm looking at Plastic Man, but for some reason I'm still like, this is Marvel. <laughs> it's just some weird hang up in my mind. <laughs> but it looks really good, and yeah, this was really fun. The Funny Land stuff was great. The Hell plastic. The dog. There's there's the one uh, panel of Plastic Man like looking over at the. Uh, monitors that uh, Michael Holt's looking at, and he's he's doing like the huh? yeah, <laughs> <laughs> huh, huh, <laughs> yeah, good shit, yeah. All right, let's talk about Titans number twenty six, written by Dan Abnett, illustrated by Brent Peoples. Uh, this is a book that Zach and I will continue to disagree about. Ah, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna let you guys go on this one because. Well, really, just then Brian's gonna be saying things about it because I I don't really have anything to say other than uh, it looks it's pretty it looks you, okay. You were supposed to you're supposed to fight him. I I I like Nightwing's jacket a lot. That's my yes. favorite thing in this issue. That is a well designed 
winter coat for Nightwing. Well, that's a ten out of ten. Of course it is. Yeah, yeah. That goes without saying. I thought, but uh, apparently not. Um, no, <laughs> I, I thought this issue was great. I really like this this team's composition. I like their mission statement. I thought this issue uh, did a really nice job of bringing in um, what's the guy's name from Supergirl? I always forget his character's name. Ben Ben, yeah. Rubel. Yeah. I thought it gave Ben something really nice to do here. It I think playing him off of steel is a really, really uh smart decision to make. I just think that this team has a real character and a real personality to it that again feels distinct from everything else that's happening. And I love this bit of dialogue I'm I'm trying to find it here, between uh Beast Boy and Robin at the end. Where it's it's I mean, this is so clearly Brian Nip. It's the uh, best part of the issue, right there. Yeah, I, I want to get, I want to get it specifically. So, Gar and Dick are talking, and Dick is really down on sort of himself, and uh, Gar says, um, "Where is it? Come on, Salvatore." This is riveting, riveting radio here. Oh, man, guys. How about that uh, Green Lantern preview in the back of the books this week? Mm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very nice. Mm-hmm. Tell proto-crystal solutes we love them very much. <laughs> sorry, here it is. Okay, I'm sorry. Here it is. Gar says, it's true. This makes you as strong as any of them. Superman, John Jones, Bats, we're in this with you. Uh, full commitment. You lead, we go. Just setting Dick up as a cornerstone of the DCU as Tom King shoots him in the fucking head. <laughs> oh, yeah. I hadn't even really thought about how that was going to affect this book, too. I hope it doesn't, but it probably will. It probably, I bet it will. It seems like the big status quo they're wanting to push for a while. Yeah. And uh, I just want to say Natasha Steele, Natasha um, uh, Irons, is so great here. Yes. Maybe the best character in the book. All right. Anything else before we get to the last book? That's it. That's it. Okay. So ramping things up, we've got uh, Wonder Woman... Um, this is issue 56, correct? Or is it 55? My bad. I should have this. 55. 55. Uh, written by Steve Orlando, illustrated by Raul Allen and Patricia Martin. Uh, this wraps up Orlando's run and I will lament its passing because it has been just a delight. The art of this Um, issue, man. So good. Um, really great use of the the lasso of truth um really great like philosophy of i guess like foreign relations and and kind of just like governance in general this is a this is a pretty big brain comic in like a good way yeah very big a brain (laughs) Uh yeah and and yeah the art's fantastic um I could have definitely had some more Steve Orlando Wonder Woman. Yeah. Yeah, this was pretty 
pretty incredible stuff. Yeah, and and again, like leave it to him to pick up weird dangling plot threads from books that no one has thought about in a while with that um with like superwoman's giving superwoman's lasso to artemis yeah and again like yeah. you just showing you the depth of dc continuity you have to remember they mean superwoman the earth 3 character yeah. not the rebirth title that had two different people as superwoman in it <laughs> right, like right. you have thank to, goodness you, for those editors boxes yeah you have to really mm-hmm. really think about this but that's great I agree. That's such a that's oh that is such a Diana moment too. Like that is exactly something she would do. Yep. That's man, Orlando's good. Mm-hmm. See, this is what I'm talking about when I say he's underrated. The, the, oh man. Yeah. Who I'm else does you. that? And uh, uh, oh god, there was something else I wanted to note. Oh, I just you you kind of mentioned it, Zach, but the the way that the way that he uh and the artists portray the the lasso of truth and i love the way that it's it's less a uh it's less a lasso that magically makes the person tell the truth versus a conversation that they're having yeah you know like and not that they you can't do that every time you show somebody you show her use the lasso of truth you know like we get it we get but i like how in this issue they made a concerted decision to we're going to show it as this conversation where it's not only does the lasso have magic powers but she's also in there convincing them to do or say the right thing you know it's it's again it's part of diana's character to be diplomatic and to be conversational and warm in that way you know um rather than just wrapping them up with the with the lasso and and making them say the truth you know it's it, it was a nice nice little wrinkle added to that um depicted really nicely god i love this issue yeah i think it it's a tough call, but it would probably be between this and Bendis Batman for my favorite mm-hmm. of the week, for sure. Overall, pretty good week. Yeah. Should we tease next week? We always do. All right, we got yeah. Next week, recorded live from from my house, Studio, Studio 8H in Rockefeller Center. Exactly. Uh, we got Brian Salvatore, <laughs> musical guest, uh, Beck. <laughs> I always, I always do Beck. <laughs> musical guest Billy Joel. <laughs> All right, so we got Border Town number two. We got Deathstroke. We got Batman. We have Super Sons, uh, Harley Quinn, Justice League, Nightwing. The dreaming, the unexpected, and the beginning uh-huh. of the uh, Witching Hour. Mm-hmm. And three blank comics we're all going to read live on air. Yes, <laughs> make our own stories. Yeah, <laughs> come for the reviews, yeah. stay for the fan fiction. <laughs> How many penises are going to be in our blank comics? Oh, <laughs> like that scene in Superbad. 
<laughs> All right. Until then, you can find uh, two of us on Twitter. I'm at Brian Needs a Nap. And I'm at Walker Fox. And uh, as I say always, send Vince your jokes via carrier pigeon. He will uh, feed the pigeon some, uh, some bird seed and send it back to you. The only way I can get off these days. <laughs> uh, note to self, get a bird for the basement. Let's <laughs> 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 talk to you guys later. <laughs> Mom always told me life was like a mediocre comic.